first thing in the morning, as soon as you wake up, the to-do list starts. Does the car need gas? Hopefully those leftovers are still good. Why did I get CC'd on the <laughs> No. You can't escape the to-do list, but you can make the most of your me time with a relaxing shower using Method Hair Care products. Try Pure Peace Volumizing, Simply Nourish Moisturizing, or Daily Zen Shampoo and Conditioner for daily use. All formulated with long-lasting fragrances and are safe for color-treated hair. Reconnect with the best version of yourself. Visit methodproducts.com to unleash your inner shower. So Marin, today I'm going to tell you all about an incredible scientist that I don't think you will have ever heard of. Ooh, try me, Greg. Okay, cool. A chemist. Okay, I mean, that could be anybody. Who discovers hit product after hit product after hit product? Hit chemistry product. He. Okay, he, all right, that narrows it down. Produces what has been called the first wonder drug. What's a wonder drug? Mm, something that dentists, surgeons, physicians, and sports stars couldn't get enough of. You had me up until sports stars. I was going to say laughing gas. Okay, interesting. Mm. He also develops a drug that becomes the go-to indigestion treatment. Uh, Mr. Pepto-Bismol? <laughs> <laughs> Mr. Gaviscon. Um, and he pioneers a new way to make whiskey. Mr. Jack Daniels? <laughs> Where are we going with this guy? <laughs> okay, so while he was alive, this gentleman was the most famous Japanese person in the United States. Whoa. But despite an incredible legacy, after his death, he was soon forgotten. Oh, I hate when that happens. This is the story of Takamene Jokichi. Ooh, good name. Takamene Jokichi. Okay. I'm using the traditional Japanese naming convention there of uh, full name being surname, then first name. Right, right, right. So it's backwards to the way we do it, first yes. name, then surname. Okay, I think, that, I think they do that in China, maybe Korea as well. Okay, got it. And, you know, if I just use uh, just his first name, sometimes that would be just Jokichi. Got it, Jokichi. Uh, right. Takamene Jukichi, his story on the way. Let me introduce you to our guest expert for this episode first, though. My name is Joan Wenstrom Bennett. I'm a distinguished professor at Rutgers University in New Brunswick, New Jersey, USA. Joan has such a fantastic knowledge of Jukichi's life. I'm a scientist. I run a lab. I spend most of my time doing the kinds of nerdy things that scientists do. And so the study of Jokichi Takamene is a hobby. And it's an academic hobby, but it's definitely a hobby. I study fungi. <gasps> no. Filamentous fungi. Greg. What? And my uh, main love among the molds is one called Aspergillus. My main love among the molds, best phrase ever. Yeah, same, Joan. Aspergillus is so cool. And that's the Takamini connection. Great, you did not tell me there was fungus involved. Way to bury the lead, man. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get to the mold later on, for sure. Um, also, I've brought in some samples. <gasps> is it Aspergillus? Because it is so cool. Have you seen an Aspergillus, Greg? So the thing is, I've brought you in samples I thought you'd be really excited about. But now, on second thoughts, I probably should have just brought you some mold. Uh, <laughs> I've brought you in some samples originally made with the mold oh. to try. Okay. They're actually full bottles, though, when I say samples. Oh, um, bottle. Okay. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> this could end up being our first half cut surprisingly brilliant. What do you mean, like, cut in cut in half? What do you mean half cut? What, is that, what does that mean? Drunk history <gasps> of science. I've been waiting for this special edition. <laughs> surprisingly brilliant. Tell me you brought alcohol. Yes, I did. <laughs> but first, welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. This is a science history podcast from Seeker that tells the stories of surprising yet brilliant discoveries, ideas, and people. I'm Marin Hunsberger. I'm Greg Foote. And for this episode, 
I am the storyteller, which means Marin knows nothing about it. I'm in the dark. Okay, I think the best plan today is for me just to tell you the story of Takamena Jukichi's life okay. from beginning to end. In some places, it's difficult to know what actually happened because there just aren't many accounts of his life. Mm. And the few that there are sometimes differ. But I'm going to get to all that. Uh, let's start then at the start. It's 1854. We are in Takeoka City. It's a small town on the west coast of Japan. Takamene was born right around the time Japan so-called opened to the West. And so the system and the education and the various social classes of Japan were very different from now. And his father was a feudal physician and Jokichi's mother came from a family that ran a sake factory, which is part of the story. <gasps> sake. Delicious rice wine. Okay, wait, is this where Asper... Gillis comes in. Is sake made with fungus? Just you wait and see. But yes, sake is indeed one of the two tipples that I've got for us to enjoy during the record. Two. Oh my gosh. Don't worry, we're going to wait until we get to that part of the story. Okay, good. Yeah. Uh, back to Jokichi's childhood then and his parents. They were very interested that their son should get a good education and also that he be exposed to Western ideas, which was quite forward thinking for the time in Japan. At the age of 12, he's sent over a thousand kilometers away to Nagasaki to study what's often called foreign science foreign science okay so what does that mean at this point in like japanese history right so japan had kept its borders closed for essentially the last couple of centuries oh, um, wow. so i think it's only in the 1800s ish that they actually start translating the scientific works of the west oh wow okay so they had an isolationist moment or two mm. and then you know once they open their borders back up they have access to like Newton and stuff. Yeah, and that's exactly what Jokichi is learning. And then at 16, he goes to medical school in Osaka and he lives with the Portuguese ambassador who he learns English from. He learns English from the Portuguese ambassador in Osaka, Japan. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. And then at 18, he transfers to studying chemistry in Tokyo. Then, when he graduates, the new imperial government chooses him to be one of 11 students to send to the UK. All expenses paid to learn all about Western science. Interesting. So they're like ambassadors from this newly opened Japan to the rest of the world's science. Yeah, Japan wants to learn from the West too. They want to bring Western science and engineering back to Japan. And this is in the late 1800s? Uh-huh. That's a heck of a boat ride. Where is he sent? Glasgow. A little bit different from feudal late 1800s Japan, I would imagine. There's an interesting translation of a letter he'd written home to Japan from his uh, time in Glasgow, talking about how the buildings were tall and that they had rooms under the first floor that were bad and that people were very pious, very hardworking, and that everything was made of iron. Is he talking about basements? Yes. Rooms underneath the floor that are bad. Yeah, yeah. that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) So he's got a bit of a background in medicine. Uh, He's focused on chemistry. So what does he choose to study in Glasgow? He studied fertilizer. (laughs) He was fascinated by fertilizer. Okay, no, I was not expecting that. I guess chemistry, sure. Medicine, ah. After fertilizer, he started studying patent law. And neither of these things make most people's blood race with fascination. Patent law is not something that gets me feeling passionate, I would say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But these interests, especially in patent law, actually, are going to make him pretty darn wealthy eventually. 
eventually. And after his studies, Jikichi returns to Japan. He takes a job with the Japanese Department of Agriculture and Commerce and, after only a year, is sent to America. He was sent to the United States to be a co-commissioner at what I guess we'd now call a World's Fair. How much do I love a World's Fair, Marin? Oh, uh, the most. <laughs> Talked about these quite a few times, right? They're all about showing off the latest state-of-the-art technological advances and inventions from all over the world. They're very exciting. Um, often the hosts build incredible centerpiece buildings. The Eiffel Tower. Yes, the Eiffel Tower in Paris, uh, Crystal Palace in London, the Atomium in Brussels, the Space Needle in Seattle. Oh yeah, the Space Needle, I forgot about that. Yeah, this one, uh, it's 1884. It's called the World Cotton Exposition, but it doesn't focus on cotton. It's just called that because it's held in New Orleans, which at the time handles nearly one third of all cotton production in the US. Again, World Cotton Exhibition, not necessarily something that gets the heart racing. <laughs> so why is Jakichi sent to New Orleans? He was sent as he spoke English. I've read it somewhere that when he spoke English, he apparently did so with a mild Dutch accent because the Dutch had been in Nagasaki and he'd studied with them and then it was overlaid with this Scotch accent. Wait, this is so beautiful. He learns English from the Portuguese ambassador in Japan who's been influenced by the Dutch and then he lives in Glasgow. Very interesting accent. I love this. Must have been like beautiful to listen to. So excellent. Um, so he was there, to answer your question, is there to promote Japanese culture and Japanese crafts, right? Silks, sake, paper and he meets someone who would become a big part of his life and his success. He rents a room in a large house in the French quarter of New Orleans owned by a retired officer Colonel Ebenezer Hitch. But it is not Colonel Hitch who becomes this important person to Jakichi. No, it's his eldest daughter Caroline Field Hitch. This is such a beautiful image you're painting. I'm picturing Jakichi in the middle of the French Quarter in New Orleans with the Spanish moss and the beautiful buildings standing down, you know, below one of those gorgeous uh, railings. What are they called? Balconies. Balconies. Yeah. Oh, with the like Romeo and Juliet situation. Like, hark, what light through yonder window breaks, Caroline Hitch. <laughs> so Caroline is described as good looking, uh, a young Southern belle. Uh, and she was young, right? Jakichi's in his late 20s, Caroline is a teenager. Okay, not into that. Creepy. But they fall for each other. And let me just play you this bit from Joan. Here you go. Something I did with a professor, I convinced the Japanese consulate there to put a plaque on the house where Takamani and Caroline had met and had courted. And so if you go to New Orleans and you walk to the back end of the French Quarter or on Esplanade Avenue, you can find this plaque that will commemorate and some now and then Japanese tourists find it and it makes me feel good that it's something I've done physically to help um, his memory. I love this I love that Joan is so invested in his story and keeping his memory alive and also this plaque tells me that this is a very important moment in oh, our it is story. it is after six months the cotton exposition wraps up and it's time for Jakichi to return to Japan so he asks Caroline for her hand in marriage. <gasps> So they're not going to be star-crossed lovers after all. However, he returns to Japan alone. Oh no. But he promises that he will return to her when he has set himself up financially. He takes something else with him back to Japan as is well. It, by any chance, cotton? Uh, it's not cotton, <laughs> no. Uh, but it is fertilizer related. Oh, he gosh. finds at the fair, something caught his eye, something called superphosphate rocks. 
Sounds blingy. It makes super phosphate fertilizers. What on earth is that? I hear you ask, or more accurately, what in earth is that? Oh, nice, good one. Okay, so basically, plants need various chemicals to grow. Sure. Nitrogen to grow new stems yeah. and flowers and, and fruit faster. Potassium to fight off disease and for photosynthesis. Uh, that's the way that plants create sugars and phosphorus to grow and strengthen the roots and uh, also chlorophyll as well, which they need for photosynthesis. So if you can find a way to uh, pack your fertilizer with even more of those things, you're going to give the crops more of what they need to grow. Ooh, so they grow faster and stronger and better and stuff. What do you think's in super phosphate rocks? Lots of phosphorus, I yeah, imagine. <laughs> yeah. So Jokichi takes 10 tons of it back to Japan with him. That's 9,000 kilograms. Isn't phosphorus like explosive? Isn't there something about fertilizer that's explosive? You've got to be a bit careful with it. Yeah. <laughs> And think about what he's doing. It's exactly what his bosses wanted him to do, right? To bring back Western expertise to Japan. They sent him to the, the cotton exhibition and he comes back with a boatload of super rocks. Yeah. <laughs> it's actually tricky to figure out the timeline here. I don't think he does much with those rocks oh. for a few years. Huh. But he will eventually, so I'm going to come back to them. When he returns to Japan, um, he gets a new job. He gets appointed the acting chief of the newly organized Japanese Bureau of Patents and Trademarks. Interesting. So that patent law expertise comes into play. And I can imagine like in a Japan where technology is sort of being re-imported or reopened to the rest of the world, you would want a place to like organize that technology, which is, I suppose, where this newly founded patent office comes into play. Yeah, so it probably combines a few of his interests, especially that patent uh, law love. Uh, and he builds up his money for two years. And with him on this financial footing that he said he would do, and also possibly because the Bureau sent him back for work, he returns to America. We love work-sponsored travel. He returns to New Orleans. Orleans, he returns to Caroline Hitch. Is she still waiting for him two years later? Yes. 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 Uh, and they get married. It's a relief. Uh, it's the heat of the New Orleans summer. That is a humid heat, my friend. I don't know if you've been to New Orleans in the summer, but it is moist. Mm, a sticky August in 1887. Uh, Caroline wears a white dress. It's covered in embroidered chrysanthemums. And the couple walk down the aisle under the festive Japanese lanterns. Oh my God, I love that. A little culture mash. But I'm, I'm picturing about the time period in which this is happening, right? It, it, this is quite rare. This is not every day that a Japanese man from Japan is marrying like a colonel's Southern Belle daughter. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And I discuss this with Joan. It was an interracial marriage to a man who came from a culture far across the world and that she would even consider marrying him at all is quite unusual. And they were both from good families. Often at that time in history when interracial marriages happened, they were among poorer people. And then, after they've got married, they head off on a really exciting honeymoon, right? Okay, so from Japan to Glasgow to New Orleans, where's next? Oh, they visit fertilizer manufacturing plants. Is Caroline happy about this? <laughs> this sounds like it's right up to Kichi's alley. Uh, That's only stop one, because stop two, they get on a train to Washington, where Jokichi studies law. US patent oh, law. Oh, God! Jokichi, yeah. come on, man. <laughs> you got to be a little romantic. Then they sail to Japan. Uh, and back in Japan, he founds a fertilizer company. It's called the Tokyo Artificial Fertilizer Company. Artificial because it's using that ton of rocks as the source for that phosphate rather than what is normally used as the source of phosphate, which is... Dead stuff. Poop. Poop. <laughs> Commonly known as night soil. Really? 
He worked hard to convince Japanese farmers that if he poured this rock stuff on their ground, they might get higher yields. Uh, Japan has always been quite traditional. So this superphosphate is kind of like unnatural in some people's eyes, right? Because it's not from a natural organic, not how we would currently refer to organic, but like a natural source. Yeah, didn't come out of the back of a cow or whatever. It's not free range. <laughs> exactly. And because of that, the rice farmers are really sceptical. Uh, for the first two years, Jakichi's company, it just keeps losing money. Oof. What's happening as well is Jakichi and Caroline are living really close to the fertilizer plant, which apparently smells... Really bad. I can picture this. Caroline, interesting. I wonder if she knew what she was signing up for when she came to Japan with mm. Jakichi to live mm. next to the Yeah, I was really factory. interested in her role. Yeah. And she's had two boys by this time. Um, really quick succession. Jakichi Jr., born August 1888, and Ebenezer, Eben, born what, exactly a year later than that. And life is tough. Right? And yeah, even more for Caroline. She's she's one of very few Western women in the area. I was going to say, she probably doesn't speak Japanese, right? Like, this is a big culture shift for Caroline. Big time. Jokichi's parents were very unhappy with this blonde, blue-eyed, tall Western woman who did not understand their culture. The Japanese are still quite prone to marrying only other Japanese. And so to, in 1887, come back with a blonde, blue-eyed foreigner. <laughs> yeah, she finds it tough. It's pretty radical. She's got to transform herself from that southern belle to a modest Japanese wife. But her, her discomfort is only short-lived. Uh, she will soon return to the US thanks to a stroke of genius that Jakichi has about sake. We shall get to that. And we shall also get to, quote, the first wonder drug that oh he develops. And we'll get to a little tipple after the break. And the mold, Greg? It's coming. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant and the rarely told story of Takamene Jokichi. It's not really clear which way round the next part of this story happens, um, but as we'll see, the outcome is the same. We're at the intersection of fertilizer, sake, a random white Western woman in the middle of Japan, and mold? Yes. So let's go first for this version of the story. It's the one that comes from Professor Joan Bennett, right? She's studied Jakichi's life as a hobby. Um, Caroline, Jakichi's wife, is writing home about life in Japan. She's saying she's keen to return to the States, and her father comes up with an idea. Caroline's father had left New Orleans and was living in a town in Illinois called Peoria. And there are a lot of American jokes about Peoria. Will it play in Peoria? It's kind of a quintessential middle-of-the-country American town. It's like uh, Springfield. Like, every state has a Springfield. Peoria is like the America. <laughs> gotcha. And at the time, it was thriving with a large alcohol business making whiskey. And Colonel Hitch had gotten involved in a whiskey-making company. And he invited Jokichi to come back and help make alcohol. So in this version of the story, it's Caroline's dad, Colonel Hitch, who invites Jokichi back to the US to help him make whiskey, and that inspires Jokichi to come up with one of his big ideas. The other version of the story, or well, there's a couple actually, is that Jokichi's tinkering in his laboratory. He's trying to improve Japanese crafts like paper and dyes and sake and he has a booze-related brainwave 
and then he tells Caroline about it. Caroline tells her mother. Her mother then spreads the word of Jokichi's idea in America. It gets interest from a big firm, distillery firm in Chicago. Um, then the mother telegrams Jokichi to say, come to the States, they want to try it. So, right, there are different versions. Big game of Saki telephone. <laughs> Regardless of how it happens, Jokichi hits on this idea, right? And the idea is a way to improve the production of these wonderful drinks. Now, I'm going to, of course, tell you that idea very soon. But first, let me tell you how they are made. We're going to start with sake. And I thought we should absolutely do that with a glass of the stuff oh to accompany gosh, the Greg. science. You are speaking my language. This is like going on like um, one of those brewery tours, you know? Right, as glasses. <gasps> chin chin. Cute little glasses. They are really cute. Okay, hang on. This is adorable. Here's some sake. Thank you. Let me pour myself one as well. Okay, I'm going to take a little... She's going straight in. No, she's smelling it. Okay, it's all right. I should probably say... um, this, Sampling the bouquet. This sake is from um, this amazing uh, kind of big container of it I brought back from Japan many years ago when I was filming there. Um, and I did Google how long does sake last for. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate uh, that. And it said, um, generally, sake should be consumed within about one year from the date the brewery releases it. However, once sake is opened, it ought to be consumed within two to three weeks. Open bottles should always be kept refrigerated. Um, that was probably four years ago. Bruh, this is what we're about to drink right now? Up for it? Uh, okay. Cool. Bottoms up. Does one shoot sake? No, one one sips, one savors. Sorry, one doesn't I'm shop an sake. I'm uncouth American. I don't oh, know what I'm doing. It's absolutely delicious, mind. Ooh, yeah. Isn't that amazing? It's very delicate. It has oh, a I really love it. delicate flavor. And of course, we should mention here, always drink responsibly. Marvel at the science that went into your drink. Yes, savor every sip. Have fun. Stay safe. Onwards. Take me on a tour. Saki is made from? Rice. Yes, yes. Now, you need to first make something called koji. Koji is essentially rice that has had mold added to it <gasps> and cultivated on it. That mold is... Aspergillus? It is Joan's favourite mould, possibly your favourite mould. It's a great mould. It comes in all sizes, shapes, it's very fluffy and fuzzy. It's a really charismatic mould, Greg. Charismatic mould. You heard it here first. Right, as you take another sip, um, we now understand that that mould converts the starch, the carbohydrates in the rice into sugars. Or to be more precise, the mould provides enzymes which are proteins, they're molecular machines that speed up a reaction. Um, They weren't called enzymes then, though. There was this notion that there were these things called ferments. A lot of the old English literature on these active principles called them ferments. Something from a fermentation process was able to make reactions happen. So to make this beautiful drink of sake, you take some koji. A.K.A. mold on rice. Yeah, essentially. Um, Then you add a lot more rice and you add yeast. And the yeast is what feeds off those sugars in the koji and they produce alcohol. So it's like this beautiful little ecosystem where one product feeds one organism, that organism's product feeds another organism, that organism creates what we're drinking right now. Yeah, literally. I'm just having another Holy a little swig there as you were I, saying like that. I knew there I know there are fungus involved in, you know, in beer, there's yeast involved in beer, there's yeast involved in wine making, but I I guess I underestimated the complexity of how many organisms are involved. And um, we should say that's what we call fermentation. 
Yeah, sure. this, this process of yeast converting sugar into alcohol. And then, I mean, if you want to know the whole rest of the story, basically you take that thing, you press it, you squeeze out the sake, uh, you filter it, you pasteurize it, you age it, you mix it with water a little bit. And what you end up with is this wonderful liquid, um, less than 20% alcohol, normally around 16%. And how does it taste? Tastes like mold on rice with yeast in a barrel. It tastes much better than that, I should say. <laughs> Now, let's compare that production process with whiskey, which is made slightly differently. Um, hang on. Oh, no, you do not. Got some whiskey? Oh, my God. Okay, you got, you got a great flask for this one. Just a little, um, little flask. Here you go. Take, take one of these little Ooh, cups. Oh, nice. A new little cup. This is, ah, you've got a little like, camping situation going on? Yeah, I guess it's a, it's a rather large hip flask. A, t- a tartan with some Scottish tweed on it as well. But the whiskey inside is uh, American's bourbon. Okay, so what's your opinion on shooting whiskey? Are you a whiskey sipper? Yeah. Shouldn't shouldn't shot whiskey either. What? I clearly have spent way too much time in college bars. (laughs) (laughs) Wouldn't do that with this nice stuff. Okay. um, Cheers. Cheers. Oh, now we're talking. (laughs) 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 This is why I do shots. (laughs) Gross. Okay. Whiskey is made from? Barley. Wheat. Rye. Something. Barley normally, so so whiskey's always made from grain. Right. Barley, yes, as you say, is kind of the normal go-to. If you're making rye whiskey, you use majority rye grain. Got it. Uh, if you're making bourbon, which is what we're drinking here, uh, you use majority corn. Really? Mm. I For some reason, I thought moonshine was the only corn liquor, but I guess bourbon. Now, again, you need to break down the starch in the grain into sugars and then add yeast to feed off those sugars to make alcohol. To ferment the sugar into juicy goodness. And the enzymes that break down that starch into sugars come from inside the grain itself. So not from aspergillus? No, no, no. No mold involved in this one, right? You first malt the grain, which means you soak it in water and then you dry it out. That makes the grains begin to grow, to germinate. That activates those enzymes. You stop that with some quick heating. Then you mash it, which means grinding it up and mixing it with hot water. That's when the enzymes get going. They get converting that starch into sugars. Then, just like with sake, you ferment it by adding the yeast and producing that sweet, sweet alcohol. Interestingly, much stronger than sake. Yeah, I can tell. <laughs> the first distillation of whiskey is about 20%, so similar to the sake, the rice wine. But then you distill it again and you leave the center or the heart of the whiskey and you get 60 to 70% alcohol. Yeah, I can feel it in the back of my throat. But here is the thing. In the 1880s, whiskey fermentation takes six months. Right, that's just the fermentation. Like, yes, we age it for that long, normally much longer, but it takes six months for it just to ferment, to just produce the alcohol. But Jakichi's idea is going to drastically change this and therefore potentially the whole whiskey industry. He wonders if he could use the aspergillus mold from the koji used in sake production to ferment the whiskey much quicker. <gasps> First, he's going to have to isolate it. So rather than taking koji with him to America and actually trying to use that to revolutionize the fermentation time, he wants to take the active stuff inside the koji, right? So he just runs like alcohol, not whiskey or sake, right, through the koji and gets a powder from it that's called diastase. And that white powder, that diastase, 
he takes to the U.S. Got it. Right. I can imagine taking barrelfuls of moldy rice in the form of koji across the ocean might be kind of difficult. So if you can reduce it down to a powder and have it do the same thing, that's much more efficient. And you might think that this would be quite a difficult decision because his fertilizer company by this time is turning a profit. Right. The farmers are seeing the benefits of this superphosphate fertilizer. But he thinks, oh, that's cool. I'll go to America. I'll give this a go. That's awesome. I love how he's always excited about like the next thing on the horizon. So Chikichi, Caroline, the kids and Diastes uh, get on a steamer. Essential family member, Diastes. They cross the Pacific Ocean and they set up their new home. Chikichi also quickly sets up the Takamene Ferment Company. And, well, he's right. His diastase is much faster at breaking down the starches into sugars. It shortens the time to get the enzyme from six months to 48 hours. So that's like a lot more whiskey that you can make, right? And you can make it cheaper, too. You heard it here first, kids. Aspergillus, originally, is what we have to thank for whiskey hitting the big time. What I love about this especially is this is an example of him reversing that traditional flow of knowledge. Yeah. So this time, rather than bringing Western expertise to Japan, right, that's what's celebrated, that's what's encouraged. No, he is taking traditional Japanese ideas and techniques over to the West. Amazing. So we're getting this cross-functional flow of ideas. And he's also taking ancient Japanese traditions and modernizing them with his chemistry background, right? Yes. Yeah. And because he's a savvy businessman, because of that experience in patent law, he quickly gets a US patent for the use of diastase for brewing. Takichi, he is so prepped with all the tools he needs. It was not like he was the only one in the world studying these ferments, but he was one of the few. The Dutch were developing some parallel processes of enzymology. They were among the first, for example, to develop dried yeast packages so that you weren't just doing sourdough and passing on one piece of bread yeast to another. Oh, it's like the little packets you can still buy in the grocery store. To my knowledge, he was the only one doing it on the goji, the Japanese process. So he probably has the first patent on a microbial enzyme in the world. You're really playing into my niche here, Greg. This is so exciting. I thought you'd love this. <laughs> so this is in 1894. And uh, as Joan says, it, it looks like Jokichi may have got the first patent on a microbial enzyme in the world. So does this mean like a total windfall of whiskey riches for him and his family? Well... How indeed does it go down? Uh, this guy comes over from Japan, right? He's making whiskey way quicker, way cheaper. What happens? Knowing what I know about Americans, I can imagine in this time period, people are maybe not so happy about a Japanese man coming in and revolutionizing whiskey making. Yeah. Ding, ding, spot on. So the malt industry, they see him as a threat. Right, and they don't just try to defame him. The company he was working with burned to the ground. And we suspect foul play. Well, yeah, some tellings of this story say it's arson. Joan isn't so sure. She wonders if uh, when Caroline later retells this story, it becomes embellished a little bit. Mm. Regardless, it ruins him. And is at least symptomatic of some pretty blatant jealousy and xenophobia. Yeah, and it doesn't just ruin him financially. He's flawed by an acute liver disease slash possibly an abscess. Oof. Caroline thinks Jakichi is going to die. So she gets him on a train and she takes him to two famous surgeons in Chicago. 
Now, the story goes that Caroline then has to keep the family going on pretty much zero income, right? She's making and selling arts and crafts. The detail that has been told over and over again in stories is that she would take coffee grounds and dry them and burn them to try to use the same coffee grounds over and over again. Oof, that's not some good coffee. Man, but Caroline, though, I keep coming back to my admiration for her for being so resilient in the face of change and being an outsider, and then in this situation, defending her husband against people who want to do him harm. Yeah, and keeping the family going. Whew. And here comes another story, right? As Jakichi is recovering in hospital, he has a thought. It goes like this. He's eating loads of classic, stodgy, starchy hospital food, right? And he spots that lots of people around him are suffering from really bad indigestion, something called dyspepsia, which apparently affects one in three people. They can't digest starch completely. So he has something that breaks starch down. He does. His diastase powder. He approached a major early American drug company called Park Davis, which was in Detroit, and convinced them to package his precipitated enzyme dry diastase and uh, put it in an inert substrate and sell it as a digestive aid. This is amazing. I love this because he's taking this fermentation concept and system that he brought from sake over to whiskey and now he's applying it, at least in his mind, to the human digestive system. It's yes. groundbreaking. Spot on, spot on. And Park Davis, they see the potential in this. They say, yeah, let's do this. All right. They start producing a digestive aid called Taka Diastase. It was kind of the Alka-Seltzer of the 1890s and early 20th century. So this is the wonder drug. No. What? <laughs> I'm getting to the wonder drug. That's the next story. You're kidding me. Because yeah. I'm picturing at this time, like, do pharmacies sell, you know, like headache medicine or like things to treat everyday ailments like this? Well, I've seen um, pictures of the packaging and it does very much look like, you, you, you know, you buy this white powder. Um, essentially, and it's super popular, right? Joan says it still is in Japan, in fact. Um, they sold so much of it, right, this takadiastase, that not only did the profits get Jakichi and Caroline out of their financial rut, they also moved to New York, and Jakichi sets up a private laboratory that's on uh, East 103rd Street between Central Park and East River. Okay, so we're talking about some serious profit here. Oh, yeah. That's incredible. He's He just sees solutions everywhere he looks. Which is a chemistry joke that I'm very proud of you oh for saying. Oh, my God, I didn't even realize that, but I will take credit for it nonetheless. <laughs> so what solutions is he seeing in his new private New York City laboratory, Greg? Well, one that is going to launch this incredible new wonder drug, one that's going to launch a court case that sets a precedent that lasts decades, one that propels Jakichi and Caroline into the very top of the New York social scene, and one that we are going to come to after the break. I cannot wait. Time for a bit more whiskey. Welcome back to Surprisingly Brilliant. Uh, hopefully by now you are convinced that Takamania Jakichi's brilliance in... almost like I can't speak. <laughs> I wonder why that might be, Greg. I was going to say he's got brilliance in both chemistry and business was where I was going to go. Hey, I've still got some left. You've, You've got yours. brilliance in both whiskey and sake. 
Oh, right. Anyway, look, he's set up the Tokyo Artificial Fertilizer Company, uh, which makes superior super phosphate fertilizer. He's isolated the active enzyme in the koji mold, that diastase, and he's established the Takamine Ferment Company, which sadly burnt down. Um, But then he soon found another use for it, producing that very popular tachydiastase with Park Davis and company. And now someone at the company suggests something else he could try to isolate. The active part of the adrenal gland. This is unexpected. Hmm. This is unrelated to fertilizer and fermentation. Mm-hmm. I didn't even know we knew what adrenal glands were in the late 1800s. Well, this is really essentially the period of learning about it. So uh, your adrenal glands sit just above your kidneys. Uh, they release something that speeds up processes in your body, an enzyme. Other people are trying to do this. They're trying to isolate what it is in the adrenal gland. What is that active part? They're working on pig and sheep adrenal glands they've been able to isolate something and they've seen that if you inject this adrenal gland secretion into an experimental animal it raises its blood pressure so what do they want to do with it why why do they want to know what this is well they get purpose they're getting interested in it because they think that an adrenal extract could be uh, really useful in medical treatments especially to constrict blood vessels to slow um, or even stop bleeding that would be super helpful. Um, but the extracts that people have achieved so far, they just aren't they just aren't pure, right? They they break down quickly. They sometimes cause allergic reactions. So, recognizing that this could be another great life-improving and money-making product. But they're nice. Yeah, Jakichi sets to work trying to extract the active principle of the adrenal gland. And it doesn't go well. Uh-oh. No. As we roll into the 20th century in the year 1900, he's not really made much headway in two years. Yikes. Even though he has a medical background? I mean, I know it's not his current purview, but like he's got some anatomy experience, I guess. He's great at fermentation. He's great at isolating some things, but he just hasn't cracked it yet. We do know he visited the father of American pharmacology, a man named John Jacob Abel at Johns Hopkins University, one of the premier research institutions in the country. And he visited him specifically to find out what John Jacob Abel knew about this active ingredient from adrenal glands that affected the heart and seemed to have massive biological properties. So he's on a bit of a fact-finding mission, uh, and Jakichi realises that he needs help, and he invites a young Japanese chemist to come and work with him, Keizo Wuyanaka. It had to be filthy work. Remember, they, we didn't have good refrigeration then, so going to slaughterhouses and getting these glands and oh, no. isolating them with primitive equipment and no air conditioning, it had to be horrible work. And the way the story is told, you know, poor Uenaka slaves away for over a year, no success. And one night he's just so exhausted, he goes home without cleaning up. And he comes back and the next morning there are crystals on the dirty beakers. And he has somehow succeeded by this longer precipitation in waiting in isolating it. An accidental crystal discovery? I love Mm -hmm. these. Mm -hmm. It's, It's really actually kind of maybe a little bit concerning how often this happens. But also quite often it's about just waiting. Right. Right. It's waiting longer than you would expect. Um, But they've done it. Well, Keizo has has done it. But what does Jakichi do? 
Immediately, Takamani writes up a patent application. In his name? Hmm. Yes. Yes. He doesn't put Keizo Wuyanaka's name on the patent, hmm. just his own. Interesting. Okay. But here's the thing. He is a patent guy, right? He was brilliant at understanding the potential of patent law, this connection between the science and the big money. He not only sees the opportunities scientifically or where they present themselves in like a societal problem or a a general problem experienced by a population, but he also sees the opportunity to make it official. Mm. And again, how is it received? As you're probably thinking, lots of people aren't happy with him. John Jacob Abel was not happy, was not happy at all. And from what I've read, many of the early physiologists who were in academic institutions felt that this Japanese man had done something really under the table, that he visited Abel and learned something from him. As far as I can tell, Uenaka and Takamani had figured out how to isolate the active principle, and John Jacob Abel hadn't. You know, they'd gotten a head start from him, but they're the ones who figured it out, and that's why their patent cleared. Mm, the Americans feel scooped. Yeah, they sure do. Jikichi, though, gets the patent at the end of that year, 1900, for the use of this, quote, glandular extractive product. Finders keepers, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And then in March of the next year, March 1901, he gets a trademark on a name for this glandular extractive product, which he calls adrenaline. Oh my gosh. Is he, does he name it? Yeah. Also, is adrenaline still trademarked? Because I think, isn't it just like a general vocab word now? Yes. Yes. Okay. So this is where it gets really interesting. Um, Asian and European patents, they call it adrenaline. In the US, it's mainly called epinephrine. Oh my gosh. Because that's what John Jacob Abel called it. <gasps> and this is, oh, wait, I'm, this is all coming together. Epinephrine is what is in an epi pen. Yes. The thing that you stab yourself with if you're having an anaphylactic reaction. Exactly that. But also what you said, adrenaline just gets into common language, right? Even by those people who don't study uh, biology, we use the phrase adrenaline rush. Totally. I feel like I should know this, but are adrenaline and epinephrine the same thing? Pretty much. Kind of. Not going to get into the little nitty gritty. Not after a whiskey and a sake. Um, Park Davidson Company, they know they're onto a winner. Right, they quickly start producing and marketing adrenaline. It was one of the first wonder drugs. It was used for a while for almost everything. <laughs> I feel like we see that all the time with something new and shiny to the medical field. They're like, well, let's try it and everything. Um, I've got one of the ads here. Have a read of this. This is what it says on one of the adverts for uh, for adrenaline. Okay, like the trademarked product, adrenaline. Okay. As cocaine is to painless surgery, so adrenaline is to bloodless surgery. Okay, I want to get back to the bloodless thing, but we're using cocaine for pain as an as an anesthetic in this period. It was also added to um, Coca Cola, wasn't it? Originally, you're right. See, this is another example. You find a cool thing, it does a cool thing. You put it in, chug it in everything. Whatever. They'll want to drink it. Sure. Um, So yeah, the bloodless thing. I mentioned earlier that its greatest strength is that it can constrict blood vessels, that it can um, staunch bleeding. So it was used by dentists, by surgeons, by physicians, and apparently. Boxers. There's a letter from an important boxer named Gene Tooney. It was a big deal, and he writes about how he always used to take it before going into the ring for his boxing matches. It was before we tested people for drugs, but he claimed it helped him win his his matches. That doesn't surprise me. I feel like dosing yourself with adrenaline would probably make 
you're fighting a little bit better. Mm. I, I should say, we now know that adrenaline is a hormone, a chemical messenger. Um, and yeah, it was hugely successful. Check these numbers out. Park Davis & Co. sold more than $30,000 worth of adrenaline products in 1901, which in today's money is almost a million dollars. Okay. The next year, 1902, they sold more than $100,000. That's over $3 million today. And 1904, they sold almost $200,000, which is closer to $6 million in today's money. We're seeing some serious growth here. Yeah, which, of course, attracted others to do the same, which meant Park, Davis & Co. had to defend their patents and Jokichi's adrenaline products in the court. Because a patent says, I make this thing, nobody else can make this thing the way I make this thing, right? Exactly. So defending the patent says, nobody else can take this away from us, only we can make it. Well, let's go through one of these cases because it's, it's, it's really interesting. There was one lawsuit that I'm going to particularly focus on. It was a landmark case. It sets a really important precedent for the future. Park Davis filed against the HK Mulford company, claiming that their product, Adrin, infringed Jakichi's adrenaline patents. Mulford was another drug company and they said, hey, you can't patent this. This is a natural product. It's a product of nature and American patent law doesn't allow you to just take something that's out there. Okay, key difference here. Because then later in in chemical discovery, we get into synthetic versus natural, right? So you can patent a synthetic compound, but not one that you just like isolate from nature. So this is the argument, right? Mulford is basically saying, uh, yeah, we're free to use this because this is based on a natural thing. It's just right? there, it's chilling. This, this thing you isolated from the adrenal gland. So um, actually your patent doesn't count for it. It'd be like patenting trees when you're selling wood. <laughs> yeah, I guess so, love it. Um, the case went all the way up to the Supreme Court and it landed on the desk of a judge who has an amazing name. His name is Billings Learned Hand. For a patent law case, the man could not have been named anything more perfect. I want to work with him because my name is Greg (gasps) Foote, right? So together we'd be hand and foot. You need to find his descendants. (laughs) Long story short, hand concludes that even if it were merely an extracted product without change, there is no rule that such products are not patentable. Oh, so hand rules that you can indeed patent trees if you are selling wood. And he says... Hey. This may be something that's made in nature, but we've never been able to have it as, you know, in this powder form before. And the process of isolating it is what is the creative act that makes it patentable. And, you know, that held for 102 years on natural products. It's actually what allowed the patenting of many compounds like penicillin. Which we covered in an episode of season one and was a whole freaking dealio. How incredible is this? Like that case linked to Jokichi's work, laid this decision that just had huge ramifications for over a century. Which, you know, I'm conflicted on where I stand on it because I see the argument for this is just existing. You didn't make it, Mm -hmm. so why do you get to own it? But at the same time, if somebody's innovated a process to make it widely available in a really convenient and efficient way, then maybe they do get to own it. I don't know. I'm divided. What swings me is what he said about we didn't have access to it. Mm. So although it is natural, it is there. Different people were trying to actually get it out of that natural source in different ways. And no one had done it in a pure way. And he managed to do so. This is a really famous case, right? It's often discussed. But Joan makes a really great point. It's hard to find Takamini's name associated with it. And yet he was absolutely essential. And I think that's one of the reasons he's forgotten. It just were Takamini versus 
Mulford, it would be far better known. So even though Jukichi is the one who files the patent for adrenaline, the case ends up being the company versus company. Yes, exactly that. Hmm. With the vast sale of adrenaline products now going on all around the world, plus the royalties, of course, still coming in for tachydiastase, that indigestion uh, powder use. Still making the rounds, still popular. becomes super wealthy. He founds more companies in Japan and America. He builds more labs. He brings brilliant people on board. And he turns his attention more to showing the Western world how much Japan has to offer. He is once again playing that ambassador role, but instead of coming back to Japan with Western technology, he is showing the Western world how much Japan and Japanese culture have to offer. Yeah, he moves in really high circles doing this as well. He's he's part of high society. He often dresses in Japanese clothes. He talks about Japanese culture. He had his wife teaching people to do the tea ceremony. He has a stunning summer house built in the Japanese style where he and Caroline entertain many dignitaries, including uh, the Japanese royal prince and princess. Whoa, fancy. He founded Japanese-American clubs all over the country where both Japanese-born people and Americans could get together. And there was one in New Orleans that I was a member of. This is so cool. I feel like we're getting this window into a turning point in American culture, really. Like, America would be different if if Jukiji hadn't come along and exposed us to Japan. <laughs> very, yeah, that could be very true. And there's one story that really ties into that that I love. Um, Jukiji hears that the president's wife, the US president, William Howard Taft, his wife, Helen, she's redesigning the area around the Potomac River in Washington, DC. Jukiji pays for a whole load of beautiful flowering cherry trees to be a gift from the mayor of Tokyo to the city of Washington. My face right now, Greg. This is huge. My grandparents lived in D.C. and I visited them every year growing up for the Cherry Blossom Festival. Oh, you've got Chikichi to thank for that. Oh, my God. That is totally one of his lasting legacies. That, like, defines the D.C. area. I mean, literally, like, everything revolves around Cherry Blossom season. What a legend he is. Sadly, his life comes to an end in July 1922. Uh, he dies from the liver problem that's really affected him for over 20 years. Oof. His widow, Caroline, had a fancy tomb built for him in Greenwood Cemetery, where lots of famous people are buried. And you can go there now. I have, and you can see in it, it's a crypt, and there's a, a stained glass window of Mount Fuji in the back. And it's, yeah, it's quite touching. That sounds really beautiful. It does. It sounds gorgeous. And I love that Caroline commemorated him that way. But I'm very sad that we haven't remembered him as a country. Yeah, because as I said in the intro, he was the most famous Japanese person in the United States during his lifetime. I'll freaking bet. He contributed so much, right? But yet he's rarely written about. He's even more rarely talked about. And I asked Joan why, and she had two thoughts. One thing I think has to do with his mixed nationalities. He was not allowed to become an American citizen. There was a law against Asians becoming citizens. And because he'd left Japan, the Japanese kind of forgot about him too. You know, he did most of his work and lived the whole end of his life in the United States. And I mean, the Japanese honored him, but he was not quite one of their own. And I feel like we're seeing still the lingering holdover of that xenophobia that plagued him his whole 
life that was always directed at him in a negative way because of his accomplishments. I feel like that carried over a little bit into his death. And even though Japan and America celebrated him, after his death, he kind of slipped into the cracks. I wonder if they kind of thought, oh, well, the other the other kind of side. <laughs> they got will, him. They got you know. him. Well, and also, it, I feel like he and his family were one of the first examples of a multinational, multiracial, really high-profile high profile, family. Yeah. And people maybe didn't quite know what to do with that. And the second reason that Joan mentions, I think this is this is the biggie. I think the biggest thing that happened was World War Two. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. World War Two will overshadow pretty much anything. Pearl Harbor really shook the United States to its core. And there was horrible anti-Japanese publicity, horrible things said about the Japanese. And a whole generation turned against anything Japanese. God, the worst timing. Yeah, I think America's response to its Asian American population during World War II is one of the biggest stains on our history. And sadly, that's the backdrop that Jakichi's name and legacy kind of was stood against. Right, right? faded into. Yeah, and and his name has just been lost down the back of the sofa of history. Well, here we are to revive it, Greg. Hopefully, bring it back into the light. That's why I wanted to tell you about him today. Um, Of course, that's one of the things we do here on Surprisingly Brilliant. We we, uh, try to celebrate those people who have been forgotten that deserve to have their stories told. And what a scientific legacy he has. He isolated the first what we now call enzyme, and he isolated the first what we now call hormone, and those are two enormous contributions, and the same man did them. Hit after hit after hit. Yeah. Plus, alongside being a brilliant chemist, he was also a brilliant businessman. He always had this genius of connecting the science to the financial potential. That's why I think there's a good argument that he was one of the first biotechnologists on the planet. Biotechnology is essentially using living systems to make products, uh, but Joan puts it even better. It's biology making money. (laughs) Yeah, that's a pretty great description. Do you think we can call him the first biotechnologist? Oh, 100%. I would love for him to have that title, and I think he totally deserves it. Sweet. And then there's also his philanthropic work too. At a time when racism was just wired into Western society, the fact that he was able to make a successful marriage across races and to then spend a lot of his wealth trying to teach Westerners how advanced Japanese culture was, was very remarkable. He was pushing so many boundaries, not only scientific, not only in business and law, but also cross-culturally and as like an unofficial diplomat almost. I'm in awe of him. I really am. I, I think that learning about his life and the array of achievements and the impact he had in these different spheres. And um, the ups and downs. True. And the ups and considerable downs may make him one of my favourite people we've talked about across these two seasons. I agree. He's a really memorable character. However, I want to give the last word on Takamane Jakichi to Joan. I have found him to be interesting in so many dimensions because he was not a reflection of his time. He was a reflection of what in the future became common. But at the time, he was, was, um, he was unique. That's a great word. Thank you again to uh, Professor Joan Wenstrom-Bennett from Rutgers University. I 
really enjoyed our call together. It was it was lovely. Thank you so much, Joan, for keeping Jokichi's memory alive and for telling us his story. And thank you, Greg, too, for putting it all together for me, along with our delightful beverageinos oh, yes. for today's episode. Polish really, off. Really enjoyed it. You do the credits, I'll finish this sake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Take a sip. I've uh, finished mine. If you enjoyed this podcast as much as I enjoyed my sake today, then please do rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please do spread the word about Surprisingly Brilliant to anyone that you think may enjoy this episode or any of the episodes we've done so far. We have more episodes on the way, so make sure you subscribe to Surprisingly Brilliant to catch them all. And if you have a story from science history that you want us to tell, or another discovery or invention or amazing person you would like to know the story behind, you can email us brilliant at seeker.com. And if you would like to get in touch with us on social, Marin Hunsberger here goes by at Marin B, B-E-A on Instagram and at Marin Hunsberger on Twitter. And today's storyteller, Greg Foote, is helpfully at Greg Foote on both Twitter and Instagram. Surprisingly Brilliant is a podcast from Seeker. This episode was written by me, Greg Foote. My co-host is Marin Hunsberger and our producer was Sylvia Lazarus. This episode was edited by Lucas Bollinger and we had support from the team at Seeker, including Caroline Roth, Jessica Young, Megan Bates, and Megan Fu, and from the Group 9 podcast team, including supervising producer Emily Feld. The show's executive producers are me, Marin, Brian Pendergast, Brett Kushner, and Mangesh Hatakadur. And you can find out more about Seeker at seeker.com. We'll talk to you in the next one. See ya. Bye.